This is the Meiji L150 Podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Michael Dylan Foster, professor of Japanese and department chair of East Asian Languages and Cultures at the University of California, Davis. Dr. Foster is the author of The Book of Yokai, Mysterious Creatures of Japanese Folklore, published by the University of California Press in 2015. Dr. Foster, thank you for talking with me today. Thank you very much for inviting me. With this podcast, I've really been trying to branch out and put scholars around the world in conversation with each other, but also to put scholars from different disciplinary approaches into conversation with each other as well. And, and so to date, most of my guests have been historians, but I haven't had too many people who have focused so much on, on folkloristics. So could you talk about your research and, and also how the Meiji Restoration fits into this? Sure. Yeah. I, folkloristics, I should say, is, you know, it's not many people are doing this kind of research in the U.S. at least, although a folklore perspective is is quite common amongst a lot of academics in Japan, I think, what, what's called Minzo Kugaku, the study of folklore. The way for me, uh, I, I've worked in what's sometimes called a historical literary approach to folklore. And that entails looking at the development, in, in my case, the development of certain discourses surrounding folkloric ideas. The work that I've done mostly in that regard has looked a little bit at the history of folklore studies in Japan, but also particularly at the history and the discourses and sort of the cultural meaning of what are called yokai, of often translated as monsters or spirits or strange phenomena, that sort of thing. And I've looked at how discourses surrounding those creatures, those things, these things called yokai, have changed at various different periods throughout Japanese history. In regard to the Meiji period, the Meiji period, of course, as a time of profound transition in so many different ways. Looking at how yokai were understood during that period reveals a great deal about not only the intellectual trends of the time, but the sort of more popular trends and the way people on the ground, as it were, who were not necessarily you know, highly educated or intellectuals, um, but people just living in the country and cities and in the countryside, observed and understood some of the things that were happening around them and how those ideas were changing. So what would be an example of yokai or practices of folklore that became very popular during the Meiji period? Well, the one, one that I've spent a lot of time thinking about is a game, actually. And, and actually, and I should say, broadly speaking, the, the definition of folklore in, in Japan, as well as in the US and Europe, is always changing, and it's a little bit tricky. But one way that I like to think of it is practices, sometimes including t- narratives, but also including ritual, including uh, things like games, everyday practices, everyday things that people do without even thinking about them, the sort of things we often take for granted. Proverbs, these are all fit under the rubric of what people study when they study folklore. So one of the things that I found really interesting about the Meiji period was a particular game. And I'm calling it a game. Uh, it, was, it could also be considered a supernatural practice. And this is something called kokuri or kokuri-sam or kokuri-sama, depending on uh, who was saying it. And uh, some of your listeners might know Kokuri from the 1970s when there was a, a Ouija board type of game that was incredibly popular amongst junior high school students and high school students and actually caused some troubles where there was sort of a mass hypnosis or mass hysteria and it was banned in some places. So that was called Kokuri. That's a kind of second or, or maybe third iteration of something that actually took Japan by storm in the 1880s. There was a trend, a fashion to play this game called kokuri. And the way it worked, 
it's a little hard to explain on on a podcast, but essentially um, people created a small tripod made of three bamboo shoots tied together with a tray of some sort balanced on top. So it was like a little table, just a few feet high. And they would put their hands on this little table and they would call down, maybe three or four people gathered around, would put their hands on this little table and they would call down this kokuri-sama, uh, the spirit of this whatever kokuri was. And I'll explain the, where the name comes from in a moment. They would call this down to inhabit this, this little apparatus and then they would ask it questions. They would ask questions like, is it going to rain tomorrow? If it's going to rain tomorrow, tilt towards the right. And then if it didn't tilt toward the right, they would say, is it going to snow tomorrow? If it's going to snow tomorrow, tilt toward the right. And then it might move. The apparatus itself might move and one of the legs would pop up and the tray would tilt. And then they would say, oh, I guess it's going to snow tomorrow. So that way it was a kind of binary system of yes and no questioning to this, this apparatus. And that was apparently in the 1880s, starting probably around 1884, 1880, or maybe a little later, 1885, 86. That was a huge trend. It was a fashion. It was a it went viral, as it were, all around Japan. And a little background on the name is that the word kokuri probably is kind of onomatopoeic word for uh, the tilting of the device. In Japanese, you, you could say kokurito, as it tilts in a certain direction. So in the, in the mid-1880s, when the game first came to Japan and, and uh, Japanese started playing it, they very quickly associated those three syllables, the kokuri, with three very common yokai or mysterious creatures. One of them, the ko, stood in for kitsune, or a fox, and fox spirits were something that had long been part of Japanese spiritual belief and narratives. So the ko is a reading of that character, kitsune. The ku is probably, well, it came to stand in for a, a character for dog that's most commonly found in the yokai known as the tengu, which is a mountain goblin, literally translated heavenly dog, or he I like to call it heavenly hound. But um, So that ku, the gu from that tengu is a ku, and that became koku. And the di is a tanuki, or a raccoon dog, which was also a very well-known Japanese yokai, had been part of narratives for, for hundreds of years, a shape-shifting kind of creepy creature, a real animal, somewhat like a raccoon, technically, I think, in the dog family. But similar to a raccoon that was known for shape-shifting and causing mischief. So these three yokai, these three creatures, became associated with the game Kokuri. So it had this kind of magic quality to it. One of the reasons that was very interesting to look at during the Meiji period was with all of that sort of indigenous yokai association, it turns out, probably, we think, that Kokuri as a game, as a practice, actually was brought from the West. The theory is that there were some sailors who, at one of the treaty ports from America, who were stranded over the summer, their sail had to be repaired, and they started playing a game that was one of the trendy games that was being played in America and, and other parts of the world, especially Europe. A game or a divination system that's known often as table tapping or table turning. And this all came out of, and I won't go back into the, the deep history of this, but this came out of the spiritualist movement, that the modern spiritualist movement that started in America and then spread throughout Europe and much of the rest of the world in the succeeding decades. So Kokuri was a, it's believed, of course, we, we don't have absolute evidence of this, but this was the interpretation at the time. It's believed that it was actually a Japanese or Japanified 
version of this game or this divination practice that, that came from abroad. It really does sound like kind of a divination, almost an innocuous divination game. But yeah, but you mentioned the Ouija board, which you know we kind of associate with a much more kind of malevolent, malicious spirits. Does Kokuri have that same kind of association when these yokai get involved? You know, it doesn't, which is very interesting to me. The Ouija board actually came later in the eight, I think in the eighteen nineties. So this is kind of a pre Ouija Ouija board kind <laughs> of thing. And and from everything I, I, I've read from the eighteen eighties, it never did take on that malevolent association. Uh, I mentioned a version of it from the 1970s, and that certainly did. That became real troublesome for a lot of the authorities. But in the 1880s, it never did take on that that negative association. It really was, and, and that's why I keep calling it a game. It was a divination procedure, but it really was a game. It was apparently played by geisha, and there was drinking involved. And most of the times people didn't, and this is where it's very distinct from the modern spiritualist movement in the West, most of the times people didn't ask it serious questions. They asked questions about whether it was going to rain or, or whatever, or, you know, which person in the room was married, which person wasn't. So it was almost a way of testing the validity of the apparatus more than actually foretelling anything important about the future or, or about the nature of the universe. So I think it sort of retained that game-like function, which was sort of interesting. And it's also interesting because at that time, during the 1880s, actually, I think beginning in the 1870s, the Meiji government was really beginning to systematically repress shamans and spirit possession and, and spirit mediums and that sort of religious practice. Also, they were sort of recalibrating the vocabulary to discuss when, when somebody, for example, was possessed by a fox. If somebody acted strangely in a certain way during much of the Edo period, the interpretation would be that they were possessed by a fox. During the 1870s, 1880s, that language changed and it became, that kind of activity became associated with mental illness. So there was a switch in vocabulary, a switch in the rhetoric and, and the sort of language of discourse. And Kokuri fell right in that little pocket where it, it was, because it was a game, it was allowed to sort of, these weren't really spirit possession issues going on. It really wasn't, you know, it wasn't challenging the authority of the Meiji government because it was just a game. So I think that's one way in which it, it managed to be so successful. You mentioned one of the intriguing things about studying folklore is that we often get a sense of what's happening in society at the time that these practices become very popular. So what do we learn about the Meiji period by looking at a game like Kokuri or folklore more broadly in the Meiji period? Great. Well, that, that's a great question. I think I think what happens again with Kokuri is that one aspect of it we, we see like it, it's a way I think in a sense to resist the authority of the government. Very quiet, understated. There was no sort of sense of a protest involved in playing it, but the people, as it were, the the common folk living in cities, in particular, often in, as part of a recreation, you know, hanging out with friends, as it were, singing songs, they would play this game, which in essence, was flying in the face of what the Meiji government was trying to tell them about the spirit world, that there is no such thing as possession, that it's a medical issue and that sort of thing. So that's one element of it that, that was very interesting to me. At the same time, the other element that I think reveals a lot about that transitional moment is I was able to find a few sort of, um, well, one of them was really kind of a manual of how to play Kokuri. And another was a, a longer discourse on Kokuri that were written 
not by famous people. I don't know who wrote these these two particular works, but they were written for public consumption. They were sort of mass produced. Uh, I guess what what we often call, I think they call gray literature, the kind of brochure or something that doesn't necessarily always get saved. But if you read these, what's interesting about it is is it very they're very pointed in saying that the reason Kokuri works the way it does is not because of yokai. So they're debunking yokai, which is exactly what the intellectuals were also doing at the time. But their explanation of it is, in one case in particular, is what this author calls human electricity. So they're explaining that it's not caused by yokai, but the actions of this apparatus are caused by electricity, and we don't really understand what electricity is. So it was a way of, of keeping the, myst- the mysteries of yokai, the mysteries that were offered by these kind of folkloric characters and these older systems of belief, but transferring it into a new, more scientific-sounding system of belief, the belief in technology, the belief in electricity. But in fact, that electricity was never actually explained. So it, to my mind, this looking at it in this way reveals something about sort of the, the popular understanding of, uh, you know, the way in which people were interpreting the world around them. Uh, they were moving away, you know, and this is, I'm speaking in broad generalizations here, but there was a moving away from the older interpretive paradigms, the older metaphors to explain the unexplainable to newer ones, which were just as mysterious, but somehow fit better with the paradigm of modernity that was burgeoning during the Meiji period. And kind of this positivistic idea that we can, if we study it enough, we'll understand it. And, and there's no place for the supernatural in this kind of enlightened scientific understanding of the world. Right. I, I think so. W- that was the idea that the, the Meiji intellectuals were projecting and promulgating. Uh, in particular, and I haven't mentioned his name, but there was a guy named Inoue Endio, who uh, was a philosopher, educator, religious scholar actually the founder of Toyo University in, in Japan, which is still, it wasn't called that when he founded it, but it still exists. And that was his project to, to, to really explain it scientifically. And he drew on American and British scientific writings to do that. But what I found interesting is that I don't think, you know, again, it's hard to talk about the general populace, but if these sort of game brochures, the, the gray literature that I was talking about, are any representation of what people on the ground were actually thinking, they weren't quite ready to accept or embrace or make the effort to understand the sort of completely positivist scientist, scientific understanding explanations that he was promulgating. But they were willing to take a kind of a piece of that, the, the idea of electricity, for example, and say, oh, it's just caused by electricity. But they didn't really want to understand how electricity worked. And, and in fact, electricity probably had nothing to do with it. That was just the trendiest avant-garde technology of the time. So it was kind of a superficial grabbing on. I don't want to say superficial because it wasn't meaningless, but it was a kind of grabbing onto the vocabulary of the positivist, uh, scientific, uh, rationalist ideas coming from the West, but not necessarily embracing them fully, if that makes sense. So it's that, it's that ambiguous uh, transitional thing that I find really interesting about the Meiji period in particular. On the note of the popularity of yokai seen as this kokuri game, I, I was recently traveling to Australia. And so, of course, in the 14-hour flight from Vancouver, I watched a lot of movies, uh-huh. w- one of which is this, this recent movie called Destiny, Kamakura Monogotari, which, which is all about uh-huh. the kind of yokai that are inhabiting Kamakura. And the, the main <laughs> character is this, this writer who writes about folklore and, and is able to commune and converse with the deities that are around Kamakura, which, you know, he tells his young wife, 
is a very spiritual place. Right. Yeah. And, and it, you know, in fact, the whole kind of tension of the movie is, is his wife gets taken over to the afterworld and he has to go rescue her. And then they find <laughs> out they, they've been fated to, to be in love with each other ever since the Heian period. And what was striking about it is how popular yokai is yeah. to the present. Yeah. You know, what is it about yokai that is so intriguing and, and is so popular today still? Yeah, that's a great question and, and a hard one to answer uh, quickly and easily. <laughs> but but I think one, I mean, there are there are two or three things going on. One of them is uh, the the more basic thing is that I think yokai tend and always have tended to represent the possibility of mystery, the possibility of there being something out there that uh, no matter how hard we try, we don't understand. To get back to the Kokuri, uh, I mean, the, the whole the human electricity idea, the idea of ex- electricity was a wonderful thing because it, it was still mysterious, even though it, you could say it existed, but you still didn't understand it. And yokai, I think, have always represented mystery, but with mystery, there's always possibility, the possibility of something being out there that we can't see, but that has an effect on us that could show us our destiny, as it were, perhaps in this in the case of this movie. So I think that's one sort of very fundamental thing that happens in in a broadly human way is this desire not for a complete explanation of everything, but there's always got to be something out there we don't understand, something out there that allows for the possibility of of maybe something better, you know, um, because often often particularly in their their more recent configurations, yokai are not really scary necessarily. They're almost like secret companions in, in, in some senses. So I think that's one sort of underlying theme that has happened throughout the history of, of yokai. But I think uh, another thing that is really important to think of in the case of Japan is that, and this actually started during the Edo period and has continued ever since, yokai have somehow found their way into being part of contemporary media. During the Edo period, they were part of kibyoshi, uh, sort of these light literary texts almost the equivalent of manga in some ways. And in the post-war period in, in Japan, they were particularly re- sort of revived and, and given new life by a, a manga artist by the name of Mizuki Shigeru, who just died in, I think, 2015 in his, in his mid-90s. But in his, in his work, yokai also become this thing that's constantly with us. They're, they're, in a way, part of everyday life. We don't necessarily always see them, but they're always there. And I think that the popularity of his work really made yokai part of popular culture. So in the 1960s, they start to be part of movies. And then when anime really takes off, they're very quickly incorporated into anime. And you know, so as we, as we move further towards the end of the 20th century, 1980s is the beginning of what people have often called the yokai boom, where they became more and more popular, started to be looked at academically. People started sort of dredging up the history of yokai, looking at a lot of these things that my own interest in, in Kokuri started from a book that I read that was written by somebody, I think, in the 1990s who was interested from that perspective. So there was academic interest, but there was also very popular interest. 1980s, 1990s, we also see the, re- the birth of J-horror, Japanese horror films, often drawing on folk belief and folk, if not folk belief and folk creatures, certainly imagery that comes out of folklore, comes out of some of these old Edo period texts and, and kabuki and all sorts of other forms of cultural production. Uh, and that just continues and gets, I think, with anime, with manga, uh, with video games, all of that sort of cycles up until we get this explosion of, and I think the uh, the Pokemon phenomenon 
some some Pokemon actually explicitly reference folk yokai. Um, many of them don't, but they're still it's all part of the whole milieu, as it were. And more recently in Japan, the yokai watch uh, games and and movies and and uh, anime sort of ramped it up even higher. So I think these different uh, media productions build on each other, and they're you know always striving to outdo each other, you know, for financial purposes, for commercial purposes, but but also it becomes part of a, a new aesthetic. Uh, and then Japan itself becomes associated with yokai. I was at my university last year. There was a poster advertising a program uh, in Japan. Uh, and I think it, and it, I don't remember if the official name of the program was Cool Japan, but it said something about Cool Japan. And it had a kind of random list of some of the things about Japan that were cool. And I noticed, you know, there were the you know things like flower arrangement and, uh, you know, a lot of the traditional things, but it also had on it, uh, ramen, ramen noodles, and a whole a, a large um, block that just said yokai. You know, so yokai have become cool because they have become part of popular culture now. There is that kind of double edgedness of yokai, where on the one hand they are the kind of friendly, cuddly companion uh-huh. next door, but. Many of them, like the tanuki, can be both malevolent and benevolent. Yeah, and, yeah. and especially the, the jehor, you, you can see how it, it's used that other way. Speaking of these films that I was watching on the plane, the second one that I watched was a good kind of comparison to the cute, fuzzy, friendly side of the yokai with the Destiny movie. Yeah. The second one I watched was an American film called Tomb Raider. Oh, okay. Yeah. The most recent Tomb Raider right, film. Right, right. All about Himiko and the Yamatai controversy. But, oh, but really? They, yeah, but, but they, they, they remake Himiko into this kind of yokai monster that can destroy people with the touch of her hand and, and, and completely contrive this this kind of mysterious, dangerous, malevolent story about Himiko. (laughs) But they definitely are playing on that kind of bad side, the evil side of the yokai spirits. And, you know, we were talking before about what does Kokuri tell us about the Meiji period? What is this kind of popularity of yokai being, you know, the kind of double-sidedness? What does it tell us about either Japan or the United States today? Wow, that's that's that could be uh, several books, perhaps. Um, uh, I, well, I think I, I think uh, I'm not sure if I'll be able to answer that exactly, except to say that I think one aspect of it that that you've touched upon. I mean, the double sidedness or the sort of ambiguity of yokai is really what's quite profound about them, but also the thing that keeps them keeps them going, as it were. I mean, if they were just bad or just good, they wouldn't be so interesting, I think. So it's it's that ambiguity, that sort of inability be, to be pigeonholed as good or bad, that, that really keeps them exciting and full of potential. What it says about both cultures is, I, th- is I think, really hard to, uh, without sort of generalizing about, you know, sort of the, the human desire for this kind of thing. I, I would say one, one thing that's interesting from a perspective, from a folkloric perspective to me is the way in which folklore, and by folklore in this case, I sort of mean traditional imagery, traditional belief systems, creatures that have appeared for, that have a long history of appearing in narratives and in people's discussions, how these are repurposed all the time. And that happens in folklore as well, but in, in recent years in particular, they're repurposed and reused and reinvented and remade for commercial purposes. And that, to me, one of the differences between what we call popular culture and what what I'm calling folklore is that 
folklore is, is always remade and regenerated and retold, but usually not for financial remuneration, as it were. Whereas if you take a yokai and put it in a movie or put it into yokai watch, somebody's making a lot of money from that. And it also gives it a kind of authoritative manifestation. I can't tell you, I can't draw a picture and say, well, well, I mean, I guess I can, but I can't sell a picture of Pikachu that I drew myself with slightly different features than the Pikachu that, that Pokemon makes, right? I mean, that would be violating copyrights. But I can draw a picture of a Tengu or a Tanuki or a Kitsune or a Kappa or any of these other yokai from folkloric culture and do whatever I want with it. And I can, I can tell you that, well, these Tengu can do this or that. There's no copyright and there's no authority, sort of uh, institutional authority with command over that. Whereas popular in popular culture, there is, you know, often it's the legal authority of copyright law, whatnot. So one of the things that I find very interesting is looking at the way in which, as you mentioned, the Tomb Raider will take something from history or folklore or whatever, and, and sort of redo it in a way that, that sells it to a different audience. And I wonder if that different audience then has a very what we as, as scholars, as historians or folklorists would say, a kind of maybe a misappropriation of what Japanese history is really like uh, based on that, that film. And I think that happens all the time. Inversely, for example, the Miyazaki Hayao's uh, film, Spirited Away, for example, many people have asked me, oh, can you tell me about the folklore in that film, uh, the Japanese folklore in that film? And of course, it, it's not, not based on folklore, but it's really a very kind of individualistic cobbling together of various motifs from folklore in Japan and also folklore in other places of the world and presented in a particular fashion that makes it very attractive and makes it seem folkloric, seem like it's based on something deeply embedded in one particular tradition. That's what I call the folkloresque. And, and it happens with Japan, but of course it happens with folklore and history for that matter uh, in all sorts of contexts when they're taken up by a medium such as uh, film or, or manga or anime or literature for that matter, and sort of reconfigured and put together in a way that keeps it associated in a very different, distant way with its, its folklore kind of community origins, but repurposes it for selling or, or for a different kind of consumption. On that note, you, you mentioned earlier that you had seen yokai on a poster for Cool Japan. And yeah. I mean, so folklore that's getting repackaged and resold as kind of a way to promote Japan around the world. And, and I understand that you're working on similar efforts, particularly regarding certain UNESCO sites. Yes. Um, and this, in, in my research, doesn't relate directly, certainly to the Meiji period. But, but I have been, as part of my own research on yokai over the years, I wanted long ago to see how yokai or how monstrous figures, scary things, demons, oni, operate on a very sort of local community level. So I started attending various festivals and rituals in Japan that featured this kind of creature, in particular, uh, something called Namahage, uh, which is up in Akita Prefecture, and something called Toshidon, which is in uh, Kagoshima Prefecture. Um, and I won't go into details about them because I, I could talk about this for a long time. But, but what I will say is that studying these uh, made me aware of how there's a kind of global movement sort of through UNESCO to start recognizing, although UNESCO doesn't like to use the word recognize, but to start sort of documenting and recording and perhaps preserving, but certainly celebrating rituals, festivals, all sorts of what they call intangible cultural heritage. And uh, a very brief history of this in, in the year 2003, 
UNESCO created something called the Convention on the Intangible Cultural Heritage. And what happens with that, There's and it's very complicated stuff, I think, but simply put, the, the biggest ramification, I think, in places like Japan uh, and throughout Asia in particular is that every country can nominate what they call an intangible cultural heritage, or ICH is the abbreviation for it. They can nominate one instantiation of an ICH or, or several of these to be put on the representative list of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity. And every year, a certain number are recorded on this, this major international list. And more than anything, they don't, in most cases, they don't get any financial assistance for this. They don't get any financial benefits, but it's a kind of recognition of the importance of that particular cultural practice. So in the case of uh, two of the things that I've been working on, Namahage and Toshidon, both this year, later this year in, in 2018, they will be officially, as they say in, in UNESCO speak, inscribed onto the representative list in a group of 10 different rituals that are very similar that use kind of demon masks and demon uh, frightening appearances in a ritualistic way in various places throughout Japan. But as to getting get into your point about the, the cool Japan and the sort of cultural capital of these things, I've, as I've learned more and more about what happens within UNESCO and also within Japan for these nominations, we find that Japan and China and Korea in particular are very sort of competitive about how many of their traditions get on this list. And it becomes a real point of pride for the nation, but also for the local community. So the communities that I've worked with in Japan are very proud and receive a sort of sense of confidence when their very specific local community tradition is suddenly recognized nationally and then, in the case of UNESCO, internationally. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.